Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy summer, everyone. I know that the 2021-22 school year has already started for many of you, but it is still August, still technically summer, so we're going to hang on to that as long as we can. Today, we have another installment of our summer series. Our roundtable discussion today is focused on trauma-informed education. Every student has a story. And while it might be true that some students misbehave for superficial reasons or with cynical intent, for the vast majority of students, their antisocial behavior is communication. Behind every misbehavior is a story. It's a story of the past, a revelation about the present, or a default disposition about their future. There is a reason behind every student action. Reasons and excuses aren't the same thing. And I know we often talk about, sometimes even romanticize, the no excuses mindset. But uncovering reasons why students are acting inappropriately or why they're disengaging from school, not succeeding academically, why they're struggling with their personal relationships or they lack trust of adults, that is essential. We need to know the reasons because uncovering those reasons is the only way we can collectively help our students cope and eventually recover from trauma. Now, joining me today in the roundtable to talk about trauma-informed education are Jill Reedy, Joshua Stamper, and John Eller. Jill Reedy is currently Assistant Regional Superintendent for the Macon Pyatt Regional Office of Education Number 39, located in Decatur, Illinois. She is a former elementary and middle school teacher and principal, as well as a district-level coordinator for curriculum. Jill led the work of TIP, that stands for Trauma-Informed Partnership, consisting of the Macon Pyatt Regional Office, the Education Coalition of Macon County, the Illinois Education Association Teachers Union, and the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine's Department of Population Science and Policy. There was five pilot schools in that project, and their case study was featured and presented at AERA in 2019. Jill presents to administrators and teachers throughout Illinois on implementing trauma-informed practices in schools, as well as creating cultures of care through mindful leadership. Jill was also recently invited to participate in the Department of Children's and Mental Health's plan for Illinois. That's the ICMHP, which is the Illinois Children Mental Health Partnership. She's also currently working with the Illinois Governor's R3 project, which is Restore, Renew, Reinvest. That grant is designed to foster positive relationships between youth and law enforcement and to build capacity within community leaders to implement restorative practices. Joshua Stamper is a middle school assistant principal for a North Texas school district where he has had the opportunity to serve at four campuses and in two school districts. Prior to Josh's current position, he was a classroom art educator as well as an athletic coach for six years working with students in grades six through eight. In addition to his administrative position, Josh is a podcaster, an author, a leadership coach, an education presenter, and the podcast network manager for the Teach Better team. And listeners, of course, you'll recognize that as this podcast is also a part of the Teach Better team. John Eller has been an elementary and secondary school teacher, a principal at several schools, a national distinguished principal with the U.S. Department of Education, a principal center director, and a college professor. John consults with schools and school districts across the United States, Canada, and Australia, and as well as in South America, Europe, and Asia. He has authored or co-authored over a dozen books with Solution Tree and Corwin Press. His newest publication, Trauma-Sensitive Instruction, is designed to help teachers, leaders, and schools to work more effectively with trauma-impacted students. Listeners, again, be sure to check out the show notes for Jill's, Josh's, and John's social media handles, as well as other contact information. All right, let's talk trauma-informed education.
Here with me today to talk about trauma-informed education are Jill Reedy. Hi, Tom. Hey, great to see you, Jill. We also have Josh Stamper. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here also, Josh. And we also have John Eller. Hi, Tom. Looking great. forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, glad you're here. Glad all of you have been able to join me today for this, what I think is a you know very important conversation. So thanks for taking time out of your busy schedules to, to join me. We know that uh, trauma-informed education you know, prior to the pandemic was certainly uh, gaining in credibility, gaining, gaining momentum. Uh, certainly a lot of schools talking about the importance of it. But with the onset of COVID and certainly what many have experienced over the last 16 to 18 months, I don't know that being a trauma-informed educator has been more relevant than it is right now. So, Jill, let's begin with the big picture, uh, you know, the overarching view from 30,000 feet. According to the most recent CDC Kaiser uh, study, which is about the, the ACE study, I should say, that's adverse childhood experiences, two-thirds of the participants in that study reported at least one adverse childhood experience, and 20% reported it having at least three uh, childhood experiences. So clearly we should operate under the assumption that trauma is far more pervasive than you know one might imagine. So what does it mean to be a trauma-informed teacher or what does it mean to be a trauma-informed trauma school? What, is it, what does that mean? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And, and I want to add you know, to the ACE study, we have to add environmental trauma, racial trauma. I mean, there's, there's so, it's, it's with everything that's happening in the world right now, um, yeah, more, more important than ever. So what is a trauma-informed school? Uh, I get questioned that all the time, and I have schools that I go and work with, and they'll say, oh, yeah, we're in trauma-informed. And I'll say, well, what do you mean? What do you tell, you tell me what you mean by trauma-informed? And they'll say, well, we watched this movie or we read this book, and it's just this checklist. And so I have to have that deeper conversation with them to say, okay, to really be trauma-informed, you know, you're, you're shifting the culture in your school. And we worked with five pilot schools um, just on that. And it took a lot of time and to truly their journey to trauma-informed is never over. Um, it's definitely a journey, not a destination. It's not a checklist. It's not a rubric. It, it's not easy. It's messy, um, organic work within the school. And what we discovered with the five schools that we worked with and with the staff, that there re really were seven prevailing things or themes that came out from our work with the schools. Um, number one was just that shared understanding of learning, that everybody has to have um, a common understanding of trauma. We all have a different definition of trauma. And so defining that and then making sure we understand the research and the best practices that are out there, understand what toxic stress does to brain development, um, to understand executive function and how kids learn. And we have so many kids and adults with trauma that are working from the bottom up of the brain rather than the top down. And so there's executive function issues. So our school spent um, almost a year, honestly, just making sure that we understand and have that shared understanding of learning and behavior um, and the impact of trauma. And then we really worked on um, talking about how do we build a safe environment for our kids, those predictable routines, the structure, um, the compassion, responding to behavior rather than reacting um, all of those things were, and social interactions being a priority, um, that the SEL work embedded throughout the day of the school. We made sure that um, cooks and custodians and, and bus drivers, everybody was involved in that and had the training. Um, so to be trauma-informed, that, that's a big question because so many schools say that we are. 
And I'd like to I'd like to add on to what Jill said. I agree, it's not a checklist, and people I think are looking for a checklist kind of a thing. And it gets down to the deep culture and the understanding, and the fact that people know that things are happening outside of school, uh, and and it's causing some of the students uh, different kinds of of issues, and then uh, the ability to to uh, relate to that and then also to um, put themselves in the position where they're not judging, where they're not responding. I think those are important elements. And, and then shifting the teaching and the learning and focusing on the consistency and the, and the uh, foundation to, to make sure that the kids have a consistent environment. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything and that everyone's saying it. I would Want to, I want to add to what Jill was talking about because, you know, she was talking about how she's been implementing that in for like over a year and, and we've had a similar process on our campus. And I think we broke it down in, in multiple levels of communication. You know, how are we interacting with our students um, that have probably gone through some form of trauma, especially after this last year? Um, you had talked about ACEs and, you know, the studies have shown that it's almost 70% of all students have gone through at least one form of trauma. So the idea that it's a minority issue. It's not, it's, it's now the majority. And so, you know, we're, we've been really teaching our, our staff, like how to communicate with someone that has trauma, because we got to assume that everyone has that somewhere within their life. The other thing is the environment, like how are, how are we providing safe places for them? So we're not triggering those, our students. And then the other thing is like, when they're making poor decisions, you know, how are we reacting to that? And that kind of coincides with some other practices like restorative practices. Um, but as far as our school, I think we're really focusing on communication, the environment, and then how are we teaching the behavior that we want? So John, as we know that, you know, most trauma is invisible. So how do we as educators, you know, come to learn of and, and come to understand the specifics of, of each student's specific trauma. Uh, we know that those who've experienced trauma are not a monolith. We know there's a, a wide variety of experiences that those uh, students have had and, and trying to understand the depths of that and, and trying to tease that out for our benefit with finesse and respect so that we can be of support to those students. How do we do that? How do we, how do we come to know uh, what trauma students have experienced? At the foundation of this uh, lies the trusting trusting relationship that you have to build with the student. And I, I have kind of a unique position because I actually experienced ACEs when I was growing up. And I just remember wanting to keep it hidden and not tell anybody. But those teachers who developed a good relationship with me where I felt like I could share, then I felt compelled to let them know what was happening. And so I think as teachers and leaders, we need to develop that relationship. And the relationship can't have like the intent that I'm gonna to try to get something out of you, but building a relationship just for relationship's sake. And then once you get that trusting uh, relationship, then I think students are gonna be more apt to give you little bits and pieces of what's happening in their lives. Now, a really important factor here is we also have to watch our reaction because if a student starts to tell us something and then we look appalled or we look shocked, it's gonna drive them back into their, they're wanting to keep it quiet. So 
I think you've got to be able to, in, this, in addition to the relationship, moderate your reactions to this. And, and I think that's going to let the students know that it's okay, that it's not shocking or appalling. Josh, in your schools, um, or your school, I should say, um, how do you, how do you, with again, as I said, with finesse and respect, how how do we come to understand or come to know, maybe proactively? Certainly, when students respond to certain situations, we may find out after the fact that there has been trauma in the past or there's current trauma right now. But are there ways for us to proactively come to know the kinds of traumas that students have experienced? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky thing because I agree with John. It's obviously building trusting relationships, healthy relationships. And I think it needs to happen organically. You know, we can't force something like if we might see some, some tells, right. That there might be something going on, but we can't pull it out of that student. We need to make sure that it's a safe space that they believe that they can share that. And so a lot of our teachers don't feel like they have the tools like John was saying to handle that, you know, when something is unloaded on you, it might be something really large that's occurring um, within maybe the student's home or maybe it was an experience that they went through. But, you know, we always talk about the main thing is to be present, to listen, um, to make sure that um, you're allowing the student to know that you're there to help them. And then, of course, if you have that trusting relationship, you can get the resources needed for that student. So don't feel like you have to be the hero, that you have to save the day. Um, the main thing is to be present, to, to feed into that relationship and, and make sure that they're course, feeling safe in that situation. And I want to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what the two of you said to understand that there are triggers that I may look at something and respond differently than someone else with the trauma. And so we often talk to the teachers about, you know, this is just best practice. So if we are doing this and from a trauma informed lens, then all of those kids that have so many issues that, that we're not always going to know about, um, we're responding in a, in a trauma sensitive way. Is there a difference, Josh, between uh, current trauma and past trauma in, in that, you know, the approach to supporting students, uh, does it change or are there, are there different ideas or strategies or support structures that are necessary? Uh, or, or do you think about the way we would respond as educators if you find out that a student is, has experienced trauma or is currently experienced trauma? Is there, is there a difference between how we might approach those two situations? Well, it's hard to tell. Um, this is my this is my thought process, and maybe John and Jill will tell him, tell me I'm crazy. But you know, as far as our experiences, right? If if a student comes to us with a two parent household, um, they're getting all their basic me needs met. Then, when they experience, let's say they experience trauma on the campus, hopefully that doesn't occur, but let's pretend it does. You know, that student might have the the brain development and the nurturing and the the will to like kind of work through that right on their own. It, it will affect them, of course, and there will be a negative effect. But for a student that maybe doesn't have those basic needs, maybe they've gone through a lot of neglect, um, toxic stress, like the brain development is probably different. And so it, it becomes a survival um, piece. And so, you know, they may do the fight, the flight or the free, freeze, excuse me. And so, you know, that reaction then is going to be far greater and we could tell that there was a past trauma. So I, I, my thinking is that based on what they've experienced in the past is going to probably determine how they deal with a adverse situation. 
I guess I'm, I'm wondering, Jill, um, if, if, if I'm a teacher and, and uh, a student discloses something to me, how do I react to that? If, if they tell me that they're experiencing a current trauma, something is happening, what are some of the ideas that teachers, educators, administrators should keep in mind when supporting that student in that acute moment? So we know with we know with trauma, even past trauma, the body keeps score. So whether it's current or past trauma, when we're working with teachers and, and talking about this with kids, we know even if it's past trauma, that that suppressed trauma is still going to impact how they react and those triggers and those behaviors that happen in the classroom. So I think both are, are equally important to make sure that we pay attention to and respond to in a trauma sensitive way. Mm-hmm. So really, in some respects, there there is no difference because what happened in the past, if that has not been uh, dealt with, managed c- coping strategies, et cetera, that's still present for me, even if it happened to me years ago. It's 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 still there. So, John, your thoughts on 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 how we sort of support is is there a difference? Maybe there isn't a difference between past trauma and and current trauma. Well, I I, I'm a, I want to agree with what uh, both Josh and Jill have said. And every person's experience is different. But the piece I want to add in is I, I also think that the age has something to do with it. Because uh, if you're younger, especially early childhood, sometimes the trauma can actually cause more permanent brain damage. Uh, whereas maybe if you're 17, you've developed some of the cognitive skills to be able to rationalize some things. I, I do know that people they do keep it inside themselves and sometimes they actually will try to bury it. And that can also be really damaging. So to me, I think it depends on the person. And again, the age I think would have quite a bit to do with, you know, the severity of of the damage. So can you talk a little bit about that, John, when you talk about age, um, maybe some of the differences physiologically in maturity, et cetera, what, what specifically are you thinking about? As you say, as a student gets older, they, they may be able to, are there some specifics about physiological stages of development that educators can at least be aware of that would help them understand how students will process trauma at different ages and stages? Yes, uh, obviously, uh, for early childhood or kindergarten age students, they're still learning about different kinds of behaviors and processes. And and so they're formulating kind of their view of the world. And then there's another major change that occurs in the brain around middle school age, where we get a lot of hormonal interaction and, you know, kids are starting to define themselves. So to me, at some of those ages, I think Certain kinds of trauma, abuse, and neglect probably have a pretty big impact because, again, early childhood, they might be trying to establish the connection between the adults, the parents, and they expect that they're they're taking care of them when, in fact, maybe the parents are the ones that are doing the abuse. So, I, to me, it's it's harder. I think if you're more adolescent, beyond middle school age, you're already becoming maybe a little more skeptical. You're trying to branch out on your own. So possibly you've already defined kind of the parent-child relationship. I'm not saying it's more minor. I think you're, you're older, you're more developed. So maybe especially things like sexual abuse probably can be more damaging. But I do think that these different stages, it's going to be difficult for people. Yeah. There is, um, 
seems to be some disagreement um, out there. Um, you know, I've heard the expression, uh, you have to Maslow before you bloom. There's some that argue that you build relationships and SEL competencies before you can teach content or standards. Now, others argue, and uh, I think I land in this camp that um, SEL and, and trauma-informed practices should be embedded as we teach uh, content or teach standards. Um, so Jill, is, is there a clear choice here? Uh, you know, am, am I wrong about uh, the embeddedness? Is, is, is there an order? Um, you can set me straight if, if I need uh, setting straight. Um, is, is, is there a clear choice here or is it somewhat contextually sensitive in terms of how we might think about you know, SEL competencies, trauma-informed practices, and the teaching of content? Um, well, and, and it, of course, it goes back to relationships. So we build those relationships and we, we create a safe environment for our students. That's number one, because we know if, it, you know, that's just brain research. So if they're in the bottom brain, they can't get to executive function, which is where all learning takes place. So we can't teach math until we make sure they feel safe. Um, but it's to me, it's all embedded. I think it's it's everything that you do. Your vision as a leader for the school and your teachers are carrying out this vision that everybody truly believes they are all in, that this is a place where we are going to constantly um, talk about our emotions and model that for our students and model self-regulation. That's just part of the day. Um, very organic and built into the day rather than we're going to have an hour of SEL curriculum. You know, second period, we talk about our feelings, um, but it's embedded throughout everything that you do. Right. Um, when you talk about relationships, uh, Jill, Josh, it makes me think about, you know, it, it's often easy for educators to, to build relationships with students they have things in common with or students who are somewhat, um, let's just for lack of a more sophisticated way of saying it, somewhat compliant with the expectations of the school. We also know that those who have experienced trauma often act in antisocial ways, which makes building relationships more challenging. So in the with with within the spirit of how do I build relationships, how do I build relationships with students who are, um, you know, present disruptive, argumentative, uh, challenging. We, we know there's trauma behind that, but we might not know that in that acute moment. How do I build relationships with students who are challenging to me or to the learning environment? I'm so glad you asked this question, Tom. This is like what I do every single day is it, those, those kids that you naturally connect with, it's obviously you've, you've got something in common with them. It's, it's easy. It doesn't take much effort or work. And so what we're charging our staff to do is like find students that um, that maybe you you don't gel with naturally, and so we do what's called a, a two ten, which is spend two minutes a day with a student for ten days straight to to try and build that relationship. And of course, I work in a middle school, so middle school kids don't want to talk for two minutes. So we we say that's the goal, that's not the expectation. And so um, you know that's just one strategy. We do a lot of relationship circles where. You know, we ask a question so that every student has an opportunity to speak and, and everyone gets to listen. Um, so that way they can make connections with other students. And it's a low level question. So it's it doesn't take a lot of um, energy. It's it's safe for them to answer. Um, there's not a lot of judgment. Um, so we teach our staff on that. Um, but the main thing is like knowing the needs of your kids. And, and I want to feed off of what Jill was talking about, because so often 
and maybe this is what you were talking about too, Tom, is the compliance piece. Like we get so focused on the compliance and not understand the needs of our students. So for instance, like if your dress code is no hoodies, but a kid feels safe in a hoodie and they're going to learn with that on, then let the kid just have a hoodie on. Like we're just glad that they're here in our classroom and that they're doing the work and they're trying and they're getting to learn. If a kid wants to sit underneath a desk because they feel safe in that experience, then just allow the kid to sit there um, in that space instead of saying, no, you have to sit in a desk. No, you have to put your hood down. And we get so caught up in these compliance pieces that pretty soon it's not about the standards. It's not about the content. It's all about doing what I say when I say it, which doesn't make any sense. It's not what the, what's best for the kid. It's not what the kid needs to be successful in that environment. So I just ask that everyone not only build relationships, but know your kids and then put some of the rules away and just allow them to be in a safe space. Yeah, that, that it's a good, good point, Josh, about compliance, because, it, you know, uh, my intent with compliance was to say, you know, there are expectations and rules about how schools operate. You are absolutely spot on. I believe that that too many of us are obsessed with compliance to the point where we allow for no wavering outside of um, what we expect sort of as a social norm. So I think that's a really important point to just say, look, there are ways that schools function and there there are some you know non-negotiables about how we operate. But within that, there is a lot of flexibility. Uh, certainly a hoodie is not one we, we want to go to the wall on. John, any thoughts on uh, the idea of embedding SEL trauma-informed practices within the instructional? And if, and if so, are there any specific things teachers can think about when it, like, okay, so so if I embed trauma-informed or SEL practices into content, what exactly would I be doing? Um, if it's okay, Tom, Tom, I want to come back to Josh's comment for just sure. a moment. Sure. I, I think that part of the understanding of what of what is making some of these students seem to be not interested in connecting is part of the trauma-sensitive uh, part that we talked about in question one. You know, it's, all, it's easy for kids who are sitting there looking at you and smiling and waving, you know, it's easy to build relationships, but then those students who don't, who don't seem to be connecting, that's difficult. And I think that conversation with the teachers about what, what is important here, you know, is sitting at the desk looking at you important or is no hoodies or no hat rules and all of that, those things over the years, I've just seen they've caused tons of problems and they push kids over the edge. And some of the kids are actually in situations where they're already on the edge when they come in from home situations. So I, I really, uh, Josh, I really want to thank you for sharing that that perspective. As far as embeddedness goes, I agree. I think that it's good to connect uh, social emotional concepts to academic concepts. But I think that you also have to point out that you're doing something that is part of social emotional. For example, in some of the schools where I have been a principal, we have developed some common procedures so that we, so that when you go from class to class, kids have consistency. So when we're teaching things like school signal for attention or voice level in groups or whatever, that that we we tied it to the academic content so that it became more permanent. But we also said, hey, we have a school signal, and we have you know expectations for going around the room or moving, moving around the classroom. And we didn't want to make it punitive, but we wanted each teacher to have consistent expectations so that kids don't have to shift gears, which if they're having trauma, 
they're already in a very volatile, inconsistent situation outside of school. So that we found that consistency is really important. Hmm. I think that's a good point uh, about the that that consistency and not making it um, uh, punitive for sure. Jill? I just wanted to add um, to what John was saying. I agree 100% because what I think the misconception with trauma-informed is that we're coddling kids. I get that from a lot of secondary teachers, or even we've talked to small business owners and saying, you know, trying to get the community to buy in what we're doing. And what I try to say, it's high structure and high support and those two things together. So we, we still, kids from trauma need predictability. They want to know that every teacher has the same rules and they're going to respond the same way. They can respect that, but it's when we start confusing them and that predictability is not, and the consistency is not there. So it's high structure and high support from that, from that responsive lens. Yeah. Another really important point is just that misconception that, um, and, and to me, it's such, it's such old school mindset around the fact that uh, anytime we're talking about social emotional learning or trauma informed practices that we're somehow being soft or that we're coddling and that this romanticizing of, of the big bad world and how you've got to suck it up and, and grind through it's just an archaic mindset that we know we have just way too much research and 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 too much uh, experience in terms of practical implementation that allows us to know that that's just a, that doesn't work and that we need to create structure and predictability and that the one of the biggest misunderstandings is that you can have high expectations you can uh, demand excellence from students and you can create an incredibly supportive environment that allows students to thrive inside of that structure. That's what real discipline is. It's structure and inclusion. It's not removal and isolation and, and punishment for sure. You and know, the transformation, John, I'm sorry. No, uh, go, ahead, go ahead. Transformation I saw in my staff is before we did consistent work together, consistent procedures, and we actually taught and developed lessons and, and nurtured the kids through the consistency, when there was a problem, a teacher would blame the students. And after we did it for about six years, kind of back to Josh's point that it takes a long time to really change the culture, teachers would come and say, I had this problem. I need to go back and reteach it. I need to go back and repractice it. So now they're taking the responsibility for the consistency where before they said, oh, this kid, you know, they're from the so-and-so family. And, you know, so that, that, that acceptance that the teachers have for, I need to do a better job, that's part of the culture change. Yeah, it is uh, incredible how, when we're not mindful and not aware, how much even someone's last name can influence the way teachers respond if we're not very purposeful and intentional about it. Um, John, one of the things that I found really interesting in preparing for our conversation today was I read a little bit about how students who've experienced trauma find subjects like music and physical education actually quite supportive and, and, and also gives them an opportunity for creative expression or creative communication. So what do you think it is about those environments, say, contrasting with the more traditional academic environment? take a subject like music or drama or physical education. What is it about those, you know, learning experiences? It's so many students who've experienced trauma actually find so authentically appealing. Well, to me, I think that some of them are outside of the box of what we would call traditional academics. I mean, for example, if you're in, uh, if you're playing an instrument, you, you have the ability to be creative, to 
you know, to practice by yourself, to, you know, to, to really shine in that. And physical education, I think just the movement and the exercise and all of that kind of helps to burn off some of the uh, negative energy or maybe the cortisol that they're, that they have. So again, I think the, like you said, the creativity, the fact that not everyone kind of fits into those molds, maybe is, it maybe is appealing to the students, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, that I, I just found that so fascinating, Jill, that, that there, there is this dichotomy between how students respond in that academic environment and then in, into those either creative or those physical environments. Somehow there was uh, a, a complete difference in terms of how the students respond. Have you seen anything like that or experienced anything like that in the schools that you've worked with? Or Oh, absolutely. And, and part of my, my job is I oversee our alternative school. And so those kids, they, they just blossom when they're given that opportunity. But I think it goes back to, you know, when you talk to therapists about, um, you know, dealing with trauma and therapy, that talk therapy um, is not necessarily the best thing for um, students or even adults with trauma. And so it was interesting. I had read um, from Bessel van der Kolk's book about there were, there were a group of women and sitting in a circle and they were all had been sexually assaulted in some way in their lifetime. And, and they were asked to talk about it. And instead of talking about it, they started beating on the chairs, just kind of this, this rhythmic drum that was just very soothing. And then they, you know, so that mind-body connection and that rhythm was very healing and very therapeutic for them. Um, just as we know, play therapy or um, working with animals and different things. And so that that music piece, the, the art, all of those senses that you're, you know, the physical piece, um, all the things that we've cut funding on in schools yeah. <laughs> tend to be yeah. what works really well with our kids. Josh, you're, you're in a, currently in a school right now. Do you see that with your students, the differences in those environments? Oh, most definitely. I would say I saw it in my own life, um, going through trauma at an early age and then hating school. Um, I only went to school for two reasons. It was art and athletics. And, you know, as an adult now, looking back, I think it really came down to the idea of control. I didn't have control of my environment at home. I didn't like a lot of structure. I didn't like to be told what to do. In fact, I still don't like to be told what to do. Um, and so with like, for instance, in art class, I was given a project and then I was, I was able to just do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. It was a project based, right? I had multiple weeks to do it. I could work at my own pace. I had my creative juices flowing and I really didn't have a whole lot of folks telling me when or where I could sit anywhere. I could dress any way I was accepted. And, um, I think it really came to control. Like I got to control that environment and with athletics, I think, you know, what John was saying is, is spot on is if you're watching me right now on video, I've, I've been moving the entire time. I have to move. It's something that's ingrained in me. And so to be stuck in a sled desk for eight hours a day was not conducive for me and my learning style. And so PE was that, um, and athletics, I did both, was something that I had to do. And I did that well into my adulthood. Um, still today, I have to be you know, active. And so I think that's just a missing piece in, in education in general is like, there's not enough movement. Like our kids are suffering every single day of just being stuck, um, not only in a controlled situation, but then also to be still. And that's just not how we are wired. And so like our, our, our goal should be at, at some time, we need to have a, a brain break. We need to get our students up, moving, blood flowing. Like we have to get blood flowing to the brain so that we can learn. And I think so often it's just like, be quiet, be still. 
and that's not engagement. Right, right. And that is certainly, you know, that comes from the traditions of how schools operate and, and the compliance issue we talked about earlier and how uh, we, we've just get caught up in that control piece that, yep. that my job as the teacher is to control the classroom environment. Josh, let me, let me stick with you here mm-hmm. and talk a little bit about leadership because I'm thinking about these messages. Uh, we have to remind us, you know, remind teachers the idea of the importance of getting up, moving around, doing things, you know, the physical environment of PE classes or the creative outlet of music drama. We know this. Most teachers will will know this, but how do we remind ourselves? How do we continually remind ourselves? And and it makes me think of leadership and and what um, you know leaders can do to kind of build the credibility. And, and and Jill, you talked a little bit about this earlier, which was you know it's being soft and it's 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 not really you know what schools are supposed to be about. But despite the fact that trauma informed educational practices and and um, strategies are gaining credibility. Leaders still have to battle parents, school boards, uh, communities, uh, even business leaders to implement these practices. So uh, this is kind of two parts, Josh. Uh, first, why do you think that still exists? Why are leaders still having to fight this battle about how important it is to bring SEL trauma-informed practices? And secondly, then, what can school leaders do to help accelerate the embedding of these practices in their schools? Okay, so I'm going to kind of break this down. So with parents, I don't think parents think of it in a negative terms. I just don't think they're educated. So when I get a chance to provide some context of what we're doing, I don't have pushback from our parents. And maybe maybe I'm unique in that experience. But I think for, for mo- often, it's just a misconception of, of verbiage. Um, that we use as a school versus what's actually occurring. And once we're able to communicate what's really going on with their students and how we're teaching those skills and um, talking through how to de-escalate and working through emotions and, um, you know, how we're interacting with those students, we get buy-in right away. Now, as far as the educational piece, like when I'm talking to teachers, when we did a training with our staff, we broke it down and I wasn't um, the one facilitating this, but I got to participate it was, okay, if you've never been sent to the front uh, to the office, stand over here. If you've been sent to the office once, stand here. If you've been sent to the office more than two times, stand over here. I can already tell that you probably know where the majority of the educators fell um, within the building. Like 90% were, I've never been sent to the office. Um, unfortunately, I was standing on the far end of that situation um, where I got sent multiple times. And so I think what that shows is that like, majority of of teachers and educators as a whole have had success in schools. And so it's hard for them to relate when someone is having these larger behaviors. Not to say that these folks haven't gone through trauma. It's just that their experience has been different and and it's mostly built around success within a traditional model of education. So for me, instead of doing a top-down saying, hey, we have to do trauma-informed practices, we have to do restorative practices, we have to do social-emotional learning, what I want to do is I wanted, I wanted to do something that's organic. And so what I did was I built a relationship action team is what we called it. Um, unfortunately, the acronym turned out to be RATS, but um, it still works, right? So it was a small group that wanted to learn about it. I wanted to learn more about it. And so we started to work through the practices. It, it worked and we saw it in the data. And then these folks were then able to share it with their peers. The peers also got to see that, you know, Hey, this is being successful in your classroom. What are you doing? 
And then as the year was going on, more and more people wanted to be a part of this group. And then within the third year, it was campus-wide. Now, I don't know if that's going to be successful on every single campus, but that's how we found success because it wasn't something that I just told everyone to do. It was almost like a pilot. We worked through, you know, what is, you know, treatment agreements, what is the relationship circles, you know, all these different things that we wanted to implement um, that we learned about. And then over time, then people wanted to learn more. We were able to educate and it was something that it was a, a campus initiative and thank Thank goodness now it's a, a district initiative, not from our campus, but just because, you know, educators as a whole are starting to see that the research is telling us that this needs to happen everywhere. Thoughts, John, on leaders, what leaders can do to accelerate this work in schools? Well, as a leader, I think we need to be modeling this kind of work with our teachers. I know in operating staff meetings, you know, if you, if everyone's just sitting there and listening and there's no input, there's no movement, then teachers, that's what they, you know, they go back, they don't see you modeling it. I think that back to Josh's comment for a moment, as you interact with, with some of the students who, who maybe are not, uh, you know, correct in what teachers want, they get sent to the office. I think they, they're looking for you to, to have some sort of execution. Uh, but if you're able to work with the student and help the student get better and then work with that teacher, I think that's really good. So the modeling aspect, I think needs to be in place. And then leaders also, we need to take a stand and uh, we probably need to address some of those people who maybe aren't on board and who aren't doing this. And you know, part of your walkthrough visits or part of your performance evaluation can be actually, I'm gonna be looking for you this year to be doing some of these strategies in your classroom and give them feedback. So I think there's a lot of things we can do, but I think it starts with the modeling. You know, if I can't do it, I can't really expect my teachers to do it. And then I wanna talk about the per pervasive problem about why it's why we're get, sometimes getting pushback. We as a society have not really come to grips with mental health. And there's a lot of denial about mental health. You know, hey, you know, you're just suck, you're supposed to suck it up. You know, too bad, you know, get going. The second thing I found is that the parents who seem to have the most influence are the ones who actually know how to run the system. And so basically they they figured they figured things out. They don't want you to take away from their children who might be going to higher learning institutions. You know, they they think there's it's a it's a zero-sum game, you know. If, you spend more time with helping these other kids and my kid's not going to get enough help, you know, too bad. And at least in my schools, the parents who really had had trauma are the ones who were really not very influential. So they, they didn't really know how to approach it, uh, which um, I think keeps it going. I think that that point about mental health, John, is uh, is so critical. The, the, the recent uh, evidence of the athletes um, uh, withdrawing from events because of mental health issues and watching society's response to, to the athletes, um, I, you know, has, has been very telling in terms of how, our, how far our society has to go still in terms of acceptance of, of the, those who proclaim to be trying to cope with mental health issues. Jill, I'm wondering about your role as an assist, a regional assistant superintendent in that leadership role and supporting this work um, 
maybe some examples of how you've been able to have those conversations or some ways in which you've been able to support the work. And I'm not, su I'm not suggesting that leaders need to be authorita authoritative or dictatorial about, you know, thou shalt do these practices, but there has to be some nudging from leadership to say, hey, this is important. So how do, how do, we, how do leaders do that? How do they nudge? So in our area, it was really important to stop looking at schools um, in isolation. And I think um, with our trauma-informed pilot that we started five years ago, the, big, the, the success, I think the innovation of what we did was that we, we went outside of the schools and we had, a, we had a community organization on board. We had the teachers union on board. But a really key player, a partnership, was with the um, Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. So we had pediatricians who were also concerned about childhood trauma and toxic stress and the health outcomes that were working with us. And so with this support group that we had for our five pilot schools, it helped the school leadership team because we had all of the support for them so that we could then go into the schools and talk to the parents and talk to um, all of the, the staff in the school, but also go out and talk to the community. So our community group that was part of our partnership, they were talking to the small businesses saying, look, what are your workers like right now? Are they having issues? Are they having mental health issues? And, and most of them were saying, well, yeah, that's why this work in the schools is so important. And you need to support that work as a community leader, because we're all in this together and we have to stop. We have to bring in health, um, community organization, all of those things within the schools, because the schools can't do it all alone. And, and it's, it's too much. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, as I was thinking, as we were, we're, we're talking uh, about all of these experiences and, and Josh, I want to thank you for earlier um, sharing your story with us about your experiences. And, and that's just one example of the fact, Jill, that we have educators who are in schools who have experienced or are experiencing trauma in their own right. So I think one of the big overarching questions for schools, leaders, districts, et cetera, is how do we help support educators who are currently experiencing trauma or have experienced trauma while they themselves simultaneously are trying to support students who've experienced trauma as well. So how do we go about that? So we had some, some very difficult experience. Um, I think after year one in our pilot schools, we actually had a teacher that committed suicide over the summer. So that was a big wake up call of, wow, this work is more important than ever. And that was after year one of spending the year of getting on board of what, and so all of these, these things were coming out with teachers. And so we were realizing that we were spending so much time talking about childhood trauma that we had to take a step back and realize that we've got to take care of our teachers. And now we're taking a step back even farther saying, we need to take care of our leaders. So our leaders can take care of themselves, lead themselves well, and then take care of the teachers. And so um, the self-care piece has been huge of how do we support because teachers do, they have their own um, trauma, they have compassion, fatigue, the vicarious trauma, all of those um, elements come into play. And so how do we create safe environments? And I think it starts with leadership. It, it's me going in as a leader and modeling that, you know, I'm having a rough day or I need to get some help or saying that it's okay um, creating that culture where it's okay to get help or to partner up. We started partnering up teachers so that they had someone that would check in with them and that 
Um, we create, we had circles going on after school where the teachers could voluntarily just come in and just debrief from the day and, and get things off of their mind and kind of, um, you know, process some of the difficult things that they dealt with through the day. So it's that cultural shift. Absolutely. Yeah. John, any thoughts from you on how we support teachers who are currently or have experienced, uh, trauma in their own right as they try to support students? I, I agree with Jill. I think it's a big issue and we've neglected it in the past. You know, we, we're really focused on the students and then because we're the caregivers, we tend to put all of our energy into the kids and then we don't really think of ourselves. I think making, helping people become aware of the fact that there could be issues is really important. I, I found some success with just asking teachers to go through the original ACEs study, the Kaiser Permanente ACEs survey. And then we talk about this and then how it could, how could, you know, what could your reaction be? And it's interesting because Jill talked about these circles. And in one school I brought in, I worked at the local university and brought in a um, psychiatrist or psychologist uh, once a month and it was open door and teachers could go in. It didn't cost much, but it was really helpful. And they could go in small groups or they could go individually and just talk about issues that they had. I think uh, letting people know it's okay that they're still, they could be recovering. Um, I think many educators have had adverse childhood experiences and maybe that's what got them into education. So again, I think we need to spend more time on it. There's just this uh, resistance, whether it's internal or external pressure, this resistance to being vulnerable uh, mm -hmm. that, that seems to still I think it's improving. I would suggest that it's improving, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be in terms of accepting the idea uh, that that there there is trauma amongst the teaching staff. Teachers are expected to be so stoic and 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 strong in the and selfless. Um, and I think it's okay for them uh, to be a little bit not selfish, but to think of self as we think about how we're going to serve our students in the best way possible. Josh, thoughts on that? How do we support? Uh, teachers experience trauma for themselves? Yeah, just just allowing self-care. I mean, self-care is not selfish, right? I mean, I think after this last year with the pandemic and having to do online learning and teachers were working unknown hours, you know, through the night and not allowing to take a break and, you know, really just be machines going every single day. And um, I know there's a lot of pressure to not take time off, not to have substitutes, um, not to take mental, you know, health days. Um, and for a leader, you know, we need to do the same strategies as what we're doing with our students. We, I think someone said it, it might've been Jill about modeling, right? We need to, as a leader, we need to model the same things that we're doing with our kids. So, you know, we, we're great about talking about mental health, but we're not, we're not great about allowing it. So instead of, you know, doing a PD session on how to um, have great mental health, how about we just allow the, the teachers to go and practice that? You know, a That's a really interesting point, Josh, that you bring up. The idea that we're we're really good at talking about it. I, I think we I think we've come to accept mental health issues in the abstract, the idea of yes. mental health, and then simultaneously we roll our eyes because the teacher's called in sick again, or taken a day off. Uh, you know, and and so there's this contradiction in what we say, you know, in the abstract about mental health issues, and then what we do in response as leaders. Uh, in those situations is sometimes different. And I think it's important that we catch ourselves um, not, not responding in those ways where there's a bit of cynicism 
behind the idea that someone's just claiming mental health issues and, and we're looking at it as, as they're, they're trying to work the system. I think we have to put that to rest and allow people to, to self-regulate, if you will, in terms of what their needs are. Let's finish with some advice for teachers and schools and, and leaders or both. Um, I'm going to come to all of you on this, but I'm going to start with John. Uh, John, when we think about teachers or schools, you know, who want to get started, they, they've listened to the podcast, they've read the book, they, they understand that this is the work we need to do. So now they want to get started. So what advice do you have for teachers and or for school staffs for, for them to get started? How do we get started with, with trauma-informed practices? Well, there's a variety of ways. To, so I'm trying to think of what might be the best. I think that uh, having a small support group might be a good way to get going. Working with, a, if you're a teacher, maybe working with a, your, a, let's say you have a PLC group or a grade level group or a group of colleagues uh, and bring the idea to them and start talking about how you can kind of build some inertia within, within your school faculty. Um, another process might be to share with your principal or administrator uh, kind of what you've learned and, and help build their awareness. Um, I, I've just found that sometimes when you start with a smaller group and you build the inertia, you can be pretty successful. I do think that we do need to raise the awareness of everyone. And, you know, as you said at the beginning, Tom, this is an, an issue that was around before COVID, but I think COVID really brought it to the forefront. So I think now the time is pretty good for people to actually become more aware. Josh, advice for teachers, schools, want to get started, want to start to be very mindful of trauma-informed practices? Yeah, I think just to educate yourself as much as possible. I know that a lot of folks may have a perception of what that is, and maybe it, it might be a negative perception, but I just always challenge you know, our staff to to get educated and, and then to act on that. Like whatever it is that you're learning about, try it out. And I, I can already see the benefits of that and that they're seeing success in it. Um, we, we always turn our, our staff over to TBRI, so trauma-informed classrooms um, through TCU. Um, I had to do it as a, myself and my wife, we're foster parents. So we went through that training through um, foster care trainings and, and it, honestly it changed everything about not only my parenting techniques, but what I did as an administrator. And so um, now they have classroom trainings that um, a lot of times are free. So, you know, if anyone is, is ever wondering, like, what is this trauma-informed practices thing? Um, typically, I, I direct them that direction because it doesn't cost money, but they can still learn from a professional on how to implement it in the classroom. Last word to you, Jill, advice for teachers in schools. I think a great starting point um, and maybe one of the easiest starting points, especially for anyone that's, that's very resistant with this, would be the brain research. I mean, you can't argue with, with the brain research and science that's out there and it's ever changing. Uh, when you start reading about epigenetics um, and generational trauma, um, it's just fascinating. And I think if you start with that and you start to understand what toxic stress and, and complex trauma does to the brain. That's a great starting point um, that everybody can can learn from and, and go from there. And that way you take some of the feelings and emotions out of it and you just look at the science 
Um, and then you start building that momentum. But it, you know, I think everybody's on their own personal journey in the beginning to really understand that. Um, and then from there, you just keep moving forward. And it's slow. It's slow and it's messy and it's emotional and people don't always get on board at the same time. And so I think you have to know that going in to be successful, that this is, um, this is a cultural shift and if you, it's yeah. worth the time and effort. Well, th this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I can't thank all of you enough for joining me today. Um, so Jill, Josh, John, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. I'm sure listeners are, are going to benefit from your expertise. Really appreciate it. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. We still have a long way to go. As I mentioned during the roundtable, we all talk a good game, even a great game about mental health in the abstract. And while things are generally improving, the stigma associated with the proclamation of a mental health issue or crisis is still very real. One need only look to Naomi Osaka, who withdrew from this year's French Open to tend to her mental health. She suffered from bouts of depression. Or you look to U.S. gymnast Simone Biles, who also withdrew from the team competition in the Olympics to tend to her mental health issues. And while most of the public was, at least on the surface, very supportive of both athletes, there was, of course, a lot of criticism. And for some reason, we have a tough time reconciling issues that are not tangible or physical. We respond to academic issues with support and instruction. We can see it in plain sight that the student, you know, can't add fractions or is still finding their way with writing or is still struggling to distinguish between mitosis and meiosis. We can see it, we treat it as a can't do, and we respond with support. Someone in a wheelchair, whether that's permanently or acutely, is treated with compassion, support, and fairness. As soon as the struggle is invisible and we don't approve of the person's response, we can be a little dismissive, even cynical. Teachers, and I would suggest adults writ large, often take behavioral challenges personally. You know, we can't see it. And when you can't see it, some will doubt its existence and hint at the idea that the student is, you know, just doing it to avoid the learning. I've heard that, I've seen it. And if I'm being completely transparent, when I first started teaching, I thought it and I even said it we still have a long way to go. Is there something to the idea of, you know, suck it up? Well, sure. We all know that life brings relentless curveballs and challenges and developing the resiliency to navigate through those unexpected twists and turns or to handle the pressure that life brings is important. But to say suck it up or fight through to students without teaching them how is not only short-sighted, it's cruel. To say, suck it up, or you need to be tougher than that, without understanding the root cause of the student's reaction and without any support or guidance for coping is essentially you saying to the student, I can't be bothered to help you. Your so-called crisis is inconvenient to me. I have no interest in helping you. Get your act together like everyone else. We still have a long way to go. Even as adults, there is still a level of cynicism when adults claim mental health issues. Like I said, we talk a good game about mental health in the abstract, 
but watch HR departments respond if someone misses a few too many days of work due to self-care or mental health concerns. Even when it's within the boundaries of what's permitted contractually, the whispers begin, the questions about their ability to quote unquote handle the job begin to circulate. They get viewed as weak or soft or high maintenance and it goes on. We often look at everything through the lens of ourselves. We look at it through our own lens and we say, you know, I had to suck it up, why can't you? If you can't, then you must be somehow weak or less than. You know, many can't seem to tear themselves away from the stereotype or the caricature of mental health issues, nor can they empathize with those who see and react to the world around them in a completely different way. Trauma, however small, medium, or large, changes us physically, it changes us mentally, and it changes us emotionally in ways that has most seeing the world through a completely different lens, and it takes purposeful effort to build a habit of empathy and support for them. COVID-19 has had more of a traumatic impact on everyone than we realize, and it's still going on. Add that impact on top of the other trauma that young people have experienced, and we now sit at a time where being trauma-informed could not be more critical. This is about relationships. It's about compassion. It's about intent. It's about understanding. And it's about empathy. We have to first realize that the prevalence of trauma is widespread. We have to also then recognize how trauma affects all individuals. And then we have to respond by acting upon that knowledge to help our students either heal or at least learn how to cope with what could be a lifelong residual effect of their adverse childhood experiences. We have to put real action where our abstract hypothetical mouths are. We have to recognize that children and teenagers who have experienced trauma have their whole lives turned upside down, literally. For those without an adverse childhood experience, safety, academic success, the development of social confidence, they are all pretty seamless, other than the normal sort of ups and downs and hiccups that adolescents face. Because for them, safety within their environment and safety within their relationships is a given. But for those who have more than one or just one adverse childhood experience, everything is upside down. Heightened sensitivity and awareness, real or perceived anxiety around safety and support, which means very little attention and very little energy is even left for academic achievement. The mental and emotional exhaustion leaves no space to settle in and just learn. Trauma-informed schools have been shown to reduce stress, reduce anxiety and depression amongst children and adolescents. They can also reduce the stress and feelings of helplessness in educators when they are responding to trauma-exposed students because there are strategies that can be applied to empower teachers to do what they do best, and that is to care for their students in a more purposeful and meaningful way. By realizing that trauma is more prevalent, by recognizing the signs and symptoms of trauma, and by responding in an integrated, research-informed way, we will be able to avoid the inadvertent re-traumatization of our students, and we will also create a culture where the adults can collectively support their colleagues who have also experienced trauma in their own right. There is reason for optimism in our collective capacity going forward, but we still have a long way to go. Remember to follow the podcast to stay up to date on what's happening. It's at Tom Shimmer Pod on Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tom Shimmer. 
the Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, and of course, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. You can also email the podcast. That's TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, follow, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, where your ratings and reviews make the biggest difference in widening the listening audience. And a big thank you to those of you who keep spreading the word about the podcast to your colleagues, your friends, and your family. I really do appreciate it. Happy summer, everyone. 